You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. We ask that you would do your ministry today, that you would illuminate the truth, the text, the truth of the gospel to us, that you would remind us of simple things we've forgotten, that you would teach us truths about our sweet Jesus, and that you would convict us of areas of sin and unbelief in our lives. Jesus, today, as we study your word, may our thoughts, may our words, may our hearts, may these be pleasing to you today. Jesus, we love you. We trust you for these things. So we pray in your name. Amen. Morning, church. It's good to be with you guys today. Enjoying this beautiful weather out of this. Oh, oh, wait, sorry. (laughs) Wrong introduction. We're not having fun. That's a bummer. Although, I have to admit, when we got started this morning, I had a moment and I thought, are about 50 of us at the park? Because... That's kind of what it felt like when we were getting started. Poor Jesse's up here doing the call to worship, and I thought, oh no, there's 50 Red Tree people sitting in a park in the cold right now. Well, what the heck's going on? But you guys shut up. It's all good. It's all good. I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. It's all good. Uh, no, for real though. So, so we had obviously we had planned today to be this kind of more low key day. We're going to hang out and celebrate uh, the beautiful spring <laughs> that we've totally had so far, and we were going to celebrate Easter and, and just kind of make it a week uh, to invite friends and family to you, but that didn't work. Uh, but it's okay. We are going to do a church in the park relatively soon. We haven't really talked about this yet, but um, you know, this is, this year 2018 represents Red Tree's 10th birthday. Woo! I don't know if you guys have thought about that before. It's really cool. So, the first Sunday in June will be Red Tree's 10th birthday, and what we're going to do to celebrate that is we're actually going to bring all three of our churches together, so Red Tree here in West County, Mid-Cities and Maplewood, and our elders uh, at the gathering in Mumbai, India, are going to uh, find a way to be a part of that with us. We're still working on that, but we're going to have a church gathering in a park uh, and celebrate and spend time praying over that, that, that original mission and vision of Red Tree Churches to plant gospel-preaching, Christ-centered, community-driven missional churches, because we need those. We need those. And there are areas around our community, the greater St. Louis area, where different pastors and leaders and missiologists and people have identified that we're, that there are tons of people praying for God to raise up workers to plant churches in our community. And so we're going to pick one of those spots. We don't 100% know which one yet, and we're going to find one of their parts. We're going to celebrate what God has already done in Red Tree, and we're going to ask Him to raise up more planners to plant more churches. So that'll be cool. So we will get to do a church in the park. Uh, that'll be that first Sunday in June. So sorry we didn't do that today. But it's all good, right? It's all good. We're in this together. So uh, we're doing something a little different. We're hitting pause on our, our, our study of the Gospel of Mark for three weeks. All three of our churches are doing this. This is something we try and do uh, maybe two or three times a year, where we normally, you guys know this, that at Red Tree we go through books of the Bible verse by verse, but a couple times a year we hit pause on that for the purpose of maybe maybe recasting vision and centering ourselves in the vision and call of the church, or, or specifically addressing certain topics or gospel areas that we think our specific churches need 
to address. And so, three weeks after Easter, each of our churches is going to be doing, uh, we're all doing kind of a standalone sermon this week, and then a little two-part mini-series for the rest of the month. And the last Sunday in April, we'll jump back into Mark. This is one of those times where it's really cool being in 2018 and having access to the internet and technology and apps, because I would really encourage you guys to get on and listen to the sermons from our other two churches this month. Um, the the, uh, the gathering in Mumbai, which by the way, I don't know how many of you guys have actually gone on the gathering in Mumbai's website and listened to their sermons, but they preach bilingual sermons in English and Hindi, and it's really cool. Uh, but, but they're going to be going through a series on marriage, uh, Maplewood is going through a series on gospel-centered worship, and we're going to be doing a mini-series on the idea of conflict and reconciliation, what gospel reconciliation looks like. So we'll start that next week, but this week... We're all kind of doing just a little standalone thing. And as I was praying over what we should discuss today, right? Like the week after Easter, we're kind of, how do we, how do you follow up the resurrection, right? That's pretty much, that's the good stuff. So, so what do you, what do you talk about after that? And, and I came back to this thing, the Spirit kept leading me back to this idea of rooting ourselves, taking a moment to come together, kind of rally the troops, and root ourselves in the weight and the power of the gospel story of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We, we celebrated the culmination of the gospel, the climax of the gospel in Christ's resurrection. But, but I thought, man, it would be so good right after that to take a minute and just kind of, kind of put ourselves all on the same page. Because the gospel, the gospel is the fuel for everything. Right, that our, our entire life of mission and devotion to Jesus, our, our reliance on Him, our relationship with Him, our engagement of the world around us comes back to the power of the reality of God's wonderful gospel in our lives. And so we're going to take today and reflect on that. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Romans chapter 1. We're going to read one of the most famous passages in the scripture this morning. You know, and I do want to note really quick, on a side note, uh, because I know we in our, not only in Red Tree, but kind of in our little world of faith tradition, right, kind of these more evangelical, reformed, church plants world, we, we put a ton of weight on exegetical preaching, right, and preaching through the Bible verse by verse, and we do that for a good reason. It's a really respectable and, I think, safe and honoring to the text way to engage the text. But uh, I want to I remind us, since we're hitting pause on Mark, and all of our churches are addressing a topical series real quick, to remind us that, that topical preaching and exegetical preaching are not diametrically opposed. Exegetical preaching is not, is not a style of preaching so much as a style of engaging the text. We do exegetical preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible because it allows us to see the entire scope of the message of one book of the Bible, and it, it keeps us accountable that we can't avoid controversial theological subjects, right? You read First Timothy, you're gonna have some, you're gonna have some theological discussions. So that's kind of the reason we do that. But a topical sermon, when we when we hit pause and do these these topical series, right? These are these are still exegetical in nature. We're still uh, trying to root everything we do in the revealed truth of God through His Word. That's something we really, really value as a church family. That that we worship a God who is not unknown. He has revealed himself and made himself knowable through his word. And so we want his word to be the foundation of everything we do in this space. Right? Amen. So, so that's what we're doing today. We're in Romans chapter 1. 
And I'm going to read for us a couple verses, starting in verse 15. This is uh, this is the introduction to the letter. So if you don't know, if you if you if you haven't been a retreat long enough to sit through our 50 years of going through the Book of Romans, uh, I know we're only coming up on our 10th birthday, but we somehow managed to stay in Romans 50 years. Uh, but if you haven't been here long enough to to be here when we went through Romans, Romans um, is one of the most theologically rich books in the entire. Bible. It's kind of the Apostle Paul's theological treatise, right? So he spends uh, multiple chapters, actually the majority of the book, he spends building up his construct and his definition of the gospel, verse by verse by verse. And it's it's meaty, it's weighty, it's, it is worth your time and attention if you have never made Romans the focus of your personal study for a season, you should do that. Romans is a book that you can give a couple of years of your life to it, and you would not plumb the depths of Romans. It's a, it's a very rich text. He wrote, he wrote the book of Romans to the church in Rome, right? That's kind of how the epistles go. So the Apostle Paul, um, near the end of his ministry life, uh, and then this would kind of put him near the end of Acts, even though there's a whole different thing here with the timeline of Paul's life, but um, on the tail end of Paul's ministry life, he wanted to travel up to the church in Rome so that he could gain access to the mission field and the churches farther west of Italy. And so he wrote the Gospel of Romans to the church of Rome ahead of him because he'd never been there before. And he wanted to kind of introduce himself to this church in hopes of establishing a home base for himself. The church in Rome was large, it was established, and it was it had deep roots. And so he thought, man, if I want to start engaging in mission work moving farther west of Italy, I can't be coming back to Tarsus for my home base. I need to have something farther west. And so he's, the book of Romans is Paul kind of establishing his theological credit with this church. Like, hey, listen, guys, I'm not a heretic. Look, here's the gospel I preach. I would love for us to come together as missional partners, right? And so that's, that's kind of the purpose of the book. In the very beginning, chapter 1 here, He's, he's giving kind of his introduction of, I haven't met you guys, but I'm longing to meet you. He talks about them mutually sharpening each other. I'd love to come and preach to you guys. Like, you can hear what God is doing through my life and ministry, and that will encourage you. And you guys' health as a church will encourage and sharpen me. And then starting in verse 15, he says this. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now come on, that's good stuff, right? Uh, If you are a Christian rap fan, and you're into Lecrae, then you know all about 116, right? Romans 116. This is one of the most famous passages in Scripture. If you have not committed Romans 1, 16 and 17 to memory, you should do that. You should do that like this week. This is, this is a good little chunk of Scripture to have in your back pocket. Because what he says here is concise, it's powerful, and I think it's it's going to give us a couple good challenges here, right? He says, man, I'm eager to come and preach to you guys and to preach out farther west. He mentions 
preaching to the barbarians, right? Like the people outside the Roman Empire. I'm eager to preach the gospel to all of you. I'm obligated to do it, and I'm excited to do it because I'm not ashamed of this gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. And then he, he kind of, you know, like, to, to, to the Jewish people, but also to the Gentiles, to all people, all people, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, I love this line, from faith and for faith. Right? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel because it is everything. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. God's righteousness is revealed in it. Faith is given in it. This it, it means what I've given my life to. I'm eager to proclaim this gospel. That's powerful. That's convicting to us, right? Like how how much like how many of us could with actual like full integrity say, yeah, I'm eager to preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. Right? Like how how boldly and how eagerly do we proclaim the gospel in our context? That's that's worth meditating on. Right? As we as we step into our workplaces and as we spend time with our family who aren't believers, as we man, as we go on, as the weather warms up someday, maybe, hopefully, and we go on walks around our neighborhood, right? How how eager are we? How how unashamed are we of the gospel which supposedly has taken root in our life and changed the very essence of our being? Right? Like how much how much do we actually, if we're honest, associate shame with our presentation of the gospel? Because we live in a culture where a life by faith, if we're 100% honest, is foolish. Right? A life by faith means setting aside some of the principles, wise principles of a good and successful life in American culture. In a culture that is doggy-dog and that is about working your tail off to gain more resources that you might establish yourself in comfort. Gospel principles go against some of that. And a life lived by faith is foolish in the eyes of our world. And so even though we live in a place where Christianity is not openly persecuted, right, like we're not getting beaten up for our faith, that almost makes it worse because we can actually hide our faith if we want to. We can live ashamed of the gospel if we desire to. We can go to church on Sunday and no one will say a word to us. And then we can live our lives pursuing the American dream with no thoughts for the gospel's impact upon it or upon our world. And no one will say a word. So this is good. We should meditate on this passage. We should reflect on this passage. You should memorize this passage. Like, I'm, I'm not joking. You should, like, next week, you should all have this memorized. It's like two sentences. You got this. But there's two things I want to point out from this that's going to lead us down a little road here that I think will be good. The first thing is this. Notice who Paul is actually writing Romans to. This, I think, we easily skip over this. Paul is eager to preach the gospel to whom? To Christians. I mean, yes, he wants to establish this mission base, but he's writing to a healthy, established church. And he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you, because I'm not ashamed of it. 
that is powerful. It's the power of God for salvation. And we go, yeah, amen. And so you stop and think about it and go, wait a minute. This is the church in Rome. Aren't they all saved? I mean, at least most of them, right? Like, these are believers. But he's affirming this too. This, this, beloved, speaks to, I think, one of the most key differences between the way the modern Western evangelical church has understood Scripture and the way the early church understood Scripture. See, we take the Gospel and we digest it down, post-Reformation world, into justification. And if you've been through Gospel-Centered Life 500 times because you've been at Red Tree a while, you know that's not, you know where I'm going with that, right? Like that's, that's not actually what the scripture teaches that the gospel is. The gospel is not the entryway into Christianity. It's not the door that you open and once you get inside, you're a Christian and you no longer need the gospel. You got that, that got you in. That's not what it is, but that's how we treat it. We, we take the biblical concept of justification and we summarize the gospel as the point, our experience of the point of justification in our life. And that is dangerous. That's actually dangerous. Because if you believe, if you begin to trick yourself into thinking that the gospel is simply your experience of justification, that point in time when you met Jesus and you experienced his saving, life-giving work, then you will begin to read the entire New Testament wrong. And when the New Testament begins to proclaim the power and outworking of the gospel, you will assume that is for other people and not for you, because you've already got the gospel. You're past that. You've checked that box. That is dangerous. That is dangerous. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Through the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith. This is for all of us, and you never get past it. You never outgrow the power of the gospel. You never check that box. You need the gospel every single day from now until you die. This is the fuel in our hearts. Beloved, we cannot miss this. The gospel is for the believer, as well as the unbeliever. It's for everyone who believes. Everyone. Salvation is not a point in time where you experience the justifying work of Jesus. Salvation is a state of existence placed on you by Jesus. It stretches back to before your conception and stretches forward into eternity. Salvation is the state of being of those who have been washed in the blood of Christ. You were saved, you are saved, you will be saved. This is, this is what it means to seek after Christ. To live a life of salvation where you are dependent on God and His abundant mercy is giving you life. It is giving you life. And will faithfully continue to give you life. So, it's, I think, important for us if we can come around that idea that the gospel is for all of us, and the gospel cannot be summarized as the point in time when you experience your justification. What is 
the gospel. What does Paul actually mean? What does he long to preach to this church? What what did the apostles preach when they preached this good news, right? Because literally, gospel is just a word that means good news. I am actually incredibly embarrassed to point this out, because it's actually amazing. But the word gospel, I don't know how much we realize this, was totally just the Christians of the day appropriating an established word and just like slapping Christian meaning on it. Like it was in, in the first century, the Christians proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ was essentially the equivalent of us today buying one of those Christian bookstore t-shirts that look like it says Reese's, but it actually says Jesus. You know what I'm talking about. We have a long established tradition of appropriating cultural memes and stamping Jesus' name on them. Amen. Uh, but, no, the gospel was, in a, well, was a well-known, commonly used term that means good news, and it was used in reference to essentially news bulletins from the emperor. When the Roman emperor would win a victory, when he would elect new officials, when he would set in place big laws, when he would give tax cuts or give or give uh, different cities, colony status, or things like that, he would send a gospel to them. And they would receive the gospel of the emperor so-and-so. This good news from the emperor. I've won a victory. I defeated the barbarians. I'm giving you a tax cut. I've elected a new governor for you. This is the gospel of emperor so-and-so. So the Christians come along and say, well, no, we have a gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's actually bigger than that. It's actually way bigger than an emperor winning a battle. So what is the gospel? What is this good news about Jesus? And by the way, I think this is important to say. Don't hear me dismissing your experience of the justification that Jesus made for you. The gospel is never less than gospel will never be less than your experience of the justification of Christ made made for you. But you can't limit it to just that. It will never be less than your justification. It will always be more than your justification. That's a, a vital part of what it means to experience Jesus. But it's not the only thing it means to experience Jesus. Beloved, if you if you summarize the gospel as your justification, it puts you in a really dangerous place, right? Where all of a sudden you go, I've received the gospel. My sins are forgiven. Christ died for me. I guess I'm just hanging out until he vacuums me up to heaven. Because that's what justification got me. It got me a golden ticket. That's not actually what the scripture describes to the Christian life. See, Jesus, in that act of justifying you, of dying for you, and paying the price for you, and purchasing you as his own, he actually has expectations of you. There actually is a Christian life that he expects you to submit to, and to experience, and to give yourself fully to. There's actually a mission of the kingdom that he expects you to participate in. And this is not like this legalistic, like, you better or else. No, 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 no. This is actually what you were made for. This is actually where abundant, joyful, free life is found. Experiencing your justification and sitting on your butt so you die 
is not the abundant life Jesus desires for you. He actually longs for something bigger and greater and grander. And to wrap our heads around that, we have to wrap our heads heads around the gospel story. You see, this is the thing. God could have done it any way he wanted, and yet he chose to preserve his good news for all of creation in the form of a story. And this story works itself out from Genesis to Revelation. The entirety of the scripture tells us the gospel story. And we have to understand that. When we limit our understanding of the gospel to justification, we tend to limit God's story down to something like this. Well, you're all sinners, but Jesus died for you to pay for your sin so you can go to heaven. I'm going to tell you guys this. All those things are true. But that's like not even the Cliff's Notes version of the story. That's like half the story. There's so much more to the gospel than that. And we have to wrap our heads around the entirety of the gospel. Or we will, we will take it out of context. And, and the Christian life we land on may not actually be the Christian life Christ is calling us to. Beloved, if you start the gospel story at sin, that's the equivalent of starting a book in the third chapter. Literally, by the way. You're missing the beginning of the story. So here's what we're going to do. I want to walk through kind of the overview of the gospel story. I know for a lot of us, this will be really basic. But I want to encourage you guys to actually engage this afresh. Because... The gospel story, and I think we're going to see this as we kind of get to the end of this, it has a weight for us that is actually necessary. It has a weight for us that actually speaks into way more of our life than I think we allow it to. So, walk with me in this. I'm going to walk through five kind of chapter heads or movements of the gospel story. And 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 then we're just going to talk about kind of each one a little bit and how they interconnect. And then we'll end our time by talking about how understanding that story gives purpose and framework to our life now. Does that make sense? So, here's the way I frame the story. And this is 100% subjective, just the the words Sam uses, because they make most sense. I would summarize God's story as this. Creation, sin, Promise, Jesus, recreation. Some of you guys, if you've maybe been in Sunday school or been in Bible studies, you've heard creation, fall, covenant, redemption, consummation. Same thing. Those I just don't like to use those words because I have to explain what they mean. Because when was the last time you used the word covenant in casual sentence? Right? And you weren't talking to a, a theology student. So I like to use these words. Creation, sin, promise. Jesus, recreation. Five movements that that move from Genesis to Revelation that represent the the actual story, the actual gospel story that God has been working out from before creation and will continue to work out for the rest of eternity. This is the story that we've been invited into. This is the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is creation, sin, promise, Jesus, recreation. I would encourage you guys, even if you don't use those words, you need to burn this story into your hearts. 
You need to have this on immediate recall at all times. Because this is the fuel of the Christian life. You start with creation, right? We can go back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. This is an important place to start the story. God is a creator God. And if you read through Genesis 1 and 2, he's not just a creator God. He's actually a really generous creator God. And without getting into right, like the theological debates of old earth and young earth and evolution and those things, because I actually think that is distracting from the gospel story. When, when, when you get down to, when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, no matter what your theological bent is, Genesis 1 and 2 proclaims a generous creator God who made all things. Colossians 1 fleshes that out for us more and says, Jesus Christ was present and active in the creation of all things. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. Colossians 1 tells us that it is for God, for Jesus, and by Jesus that all things continue to exist. At the pleasure of God, your atoms continue to atom. Because he's pleased to do so. This is our God. And if you read, I love the Genesis 1 and 2 accounts because they, they tell this beautiful poetic story with rhythm to it, right? And, and the rhythm of the story constantly comes back to, oh, this guy is good. And he makes good stuff. And he's really generous. And he makes good stuff. And he gives good gifts. You have to start the story. The, the most fundamental truth of all of human existence is that there is a God he is good. And he wants what's best. If you can't get like, if you can't start there, beloved, you are not telling the gospel story. There is a God. He is inherently good. And he wants what's best. He creates out of his power and his authority and out of his generosity. He creates good things and gives good gifts. The beautiful thing about God's creation is he's not distant from it. He's actually mingled among it. And what he desires, as Colossians 1 tells us, is this creation is for him. So God creates not for the purpose of just creating, but he creates so that the creation might be communed with him. Might be intimately connected with him. This generous Creator God creates this vast machine that we call the universe that, that goes from amoebas to neutron stars, right? Like, God creates all of this that it might reflect His glory and exist in communion with Him. And so, to do this purpose, He creates these stewards in His own image. On one insignificant tiny corner of this vast machine, he creates people. And he makes them in his image, these living creatures that aren't just meat and bones, but they're meat and bones and soul. And, and they have something in them, this spark in them that is unique amongst all of the universe that, that represents and reflects God's creative, generous, good glory. And he creates these creatures for one purpose. 
to lead and steward that creation into intimate relationship with its creator. That's why we were put here. If you ever hear people talk about, man, I just don't know my purposes, you have one purpose. To steward and lead creation into intimacy with its creator. That's why humans are here. God made these creatures unique in his image with will and freedom and thought and creativity and goodness. And the next part of the story is sin. And we know where this goes, right? You go from Genesis 1 and 2 to 3, hence the joke of starting the book in chapter 3. In Genesis 3, the thing gets broken. And it gets broken because of God's design for these <coughs> Because they are unique, they are made in His image, they are creatures of will and purpose. And God presented His creatures with the easiest choice in all of eternal existence. Right? You can have perfect, eternal, abundant, wonderful life with me, or you can die. And humans were like, when you say die, right? Like that's that's what essentially happened is humanity, the, the, the serpent enters the scene and casts doubt on humanity's relationship with its creator. And all of a sudden these creatures made good and made perfect and made in the image of God, made for the purpose of stewarding and leading his creation into intimacy with him, all of a sudden, they begin to question what? His goodness. And they begin to question his intent. Remember, the gospel story starts with there is God. He's good and he wants what's best. The first lie humans heard was God is not good and he does not want what's best. He's keeping things from you. You could have it better, but he, he's not generous. He holds things back. Take that. You can have that. You could make what's best. And so we do. But God made this perfect, beautiful machine that is the universe. And humanity makes the choice to disconnect it from its creator. Our one purpose to steward and lead the creation into intimacy. And we steward and lead the creation into isolation. We separate the creation from its creator. This is the essence of sin. Rebellion against God. God, the creator and sustainer of life. We look to him and say, we don't actually need you. We can sustain on our own. And we unplug. And just like an iPhone unplugged from the wall, the second the creation disconnects from its creator, the battery begins draining. And it begins grinding towards slow, eventual heat death. Right? This is the reality of sin. God's perfect and good creation has been made imperfect and bad. Right? And and the only possible consequence of disconnecting, of willfully separating yourself from the creator and sustainer of your life. The only direction that can go is death. Right? God is the creator and the sustainer. Life is 
in God. And so to step away from God is to step away from life. And the absolute unavoidable consequence of sin, as the scripture tells us, is death. The wages of sin is death. And when our mother Eve and our father Adam made the choice to rebel from God, they broke this machine. And they broke it badly. Every single thing in all of existence turned from its creator and turned inward. And all of a sudden the creation is focused in on itself and is winding down into slow, eventual death. And what was perfect community with sacrificial love for the benefit of the other becomes dog-eat-dog. And all of a sudden there are predators and there are thorns and there are illnesses and there are diseases and there is betrayal and there is hurt and there are tears of sorrow and there is a broken and sinful world. I love the language uh, used by the theologian Francis Schaeffer. When When he refers to the sin of creation, he calls humans glorious ruins. Because here's the piece, right? We can't just blame this on mom and dad and say, well, they broke everything. How unfair of God to treat us according to their decisions. Because the reality is every single one of us has willfully chosen to participate in this broken and cursed system. And this curse has worked its way into the very bones of existence. From the moment you came into being in this inward-turned, cursed, and broken world, your heart was bent toward yourself, toward sin, toward destruction, toward disconnection. It's so easy to look at the choice presented to Adam and Eve, right? Perfect, eternal, wonderful, abundant, eternal life, or death. You go, what the heck is their problem? Every single one of us are bent towards death, and we would make the same choice. Every single one of them. This this image, I think, is so beautiful. Glorious ruins, right? You're supposed to you're supposed to imagine, right? Like ancient Greek ruins, right? These beautiful one of a kind structures that that represent this this just amazing thing. And on the one hand, they are entirely precious, right? If if something happens and destroys ancient ruins, it's weirdly heartbreaking, right? Because they're one of a kind, they're unique, they're precious. And yet, if we're honest, they're totally useless. They can't be used for what they were made for. So they're inherently valuable and inherently unusable. This is the result of the curse in our life. We're still precious, made in God's image. His his people, his, his creatures, made for the purpose of stewarding a creation, of honoring and glorifying God and leading things into deeper intimacy with Him. And yet sin has so corrupted us that we are useless for the purpose we were made for. We can't do it. We, we choose sin all day long, every day. Our hearts are bent towards sin. We, if we're honest, enjoy sin. We come in spaces like this and we go, well, no, I mean, no, I want to live a righteous life. Yeah, but no, we love sin. We do what we want. And what we want is to sin. This is the bent of a cursed and broken world and a cursed and broken people. Romans says it that 
all of the creation is longing for this curse to be lifted. As in the pains of childbirth, it is groaning, awaiting God to actually change what has been broken by this curse that is our rebellious sin. I don't know when the last time you reflected upon that was, but the entirety of creation suffers from amoebas to neutron stars because of our sin in this world. We have broken this creation that God made generously and good and perfectly. If that doesn't sit with you for a moment, you should reflect on that. There is a weightiness to this curse, and this curse falls upon us. But that's not where the story ends. Promise. What we find out, and I love this, that God chose to do it this way, what we find out is that God is not just generous, and he's not just creative, but he's also loving. And he's also faithful. You see, even in Genesis 3, when God is explaining the reality of existence within this new, cursed, and broken creation, you can read this. Genesis 3, when God is outlining the curse. Even in the midst of him explaining the consequences of this thing called sin, God is already promising that he will fix what is broken. See, this is our God, who who sees us in our mess and our sin, and he looks at us and says, I promise I'll fix this. I promise you I'll fix this. He he, he looks and he says, he says, there will be enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the snake. He will strike the snake. He will strike at his heel and he will crush your skull. Saying that, that lie, that, that deceit, that sin that, that struck at humanity and broke his creation, God says, someday I will use one of these people and I will fix them. I will crush this serpent. Will crush this sin. Beloved, this is the story of two thirds of your Bible. From Genesis 3 up until the Gospels, what you see is God lovingly, graciously engaging his people and saying, I promise you I'll fix this. Over and over and over. The scripture actually, to, to give an analogy to God's the faithful chasing after his people, the the analogy the scripture uses is it says, God is like a spurned lover whose wife has been unfaithful and left him and run to prostitution. And God chases after her and draws her off the streets and brings her back into his home. And when she runs away again, he chases after her. This is the image God gives as he just pursues his people faithfully over and over promising, saying, I will fix this. I know you're trapped. I know you keep, I will fix this. I promise you I'll fix this. He formalizes these promises in covenants. He makes a covenant with Noah where he says, listen, I will never give up on you. When he makes this covenant with Noah, he says, you will never sin so much that I wipe the sweat clean and get rid of you. I will never give up on you. 
And then he promises himself to Abraham and he says, I will bless you. And through you, I will bless everyone. Not only will I not give up on you, I will actively pursue you. Amen. And then he covenants himself to Moses and he says to Israel, I will dwell among you. Not only will I not give up on you, not only will I pursue you, I will move back in with you. And I will let you know how you can relate to me. You don't have to be distant and separate from me. You can actually know me. And then he promises to David, he says, I've been with you. And through this relationship, I will break down all barriers. And we will actually be together again. And then through the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, he says, I will not just live with you, I will live within you. My spirit will dwell with you. I will wipe away the effects of the curse. And we will be together again. I will wipe away the tears in your eye. The effects of the curse will be gone. I will write my law on your hearts. My spirit will dwell with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. This is the story of our God. Faithfully pursuing and promising and promising and promising. And beloved, this takes us to the next chapter. God is not just a loving God. He's not just a generous creator. He's not just a loving promiser, but he's actually a present promise keeper. When Jesus comes into the world, God puts on flesh and bones. He pours himself out, as Philippians 2 said. He humbles himself, and he lives this perfect, obedient life. And he's actually with us. And all of a sudden, the unknowable God is sitting at the table having dinner with his people. Come on. God makes himself completely knowable and completely humble. And he lives this perfect life where he looks the curse dead in the eyes and says, I'm going to break you. And as Jesus lives this perfect, obedient life and then goes to the cross and dies this perfectly obedient and submissive death and then raises to life on the third day, he takes the curse and he snaps it like a twig. This is what we celebrated last week. The power of the gospel destroys the curse. And when Jesus walks out of the tomb, that snake had struck as hard as it could. He easily crushes it. Curse is broken. Now here's the thing about it. This this idea of Jesus' sacrifice, it's so beautiful because he doesn't just break the curse, right? It's not like the effects of the curse are death. And so it's not like Jesus just pays the price and is like, hey, listen, cool, now you don't have to go to hell. That's awesome. Like you no longer have to be separate from me. But no, he he tears, he tears the veil, he removes the separation, he creates intimacy, but he also he also inaugurates an actual recreation. He has not just atoned for the wrong, but he's made a way for the new. You see, Jesus is, imagine Jesus' life like this. Imagine Jesus is your next door neighbor and you both go and you plant a huge garden in your backyard, right, full of 
veggies and fruits and apple trees and grapevines and all the different stuff I guess you put in your big garden, in your backyard. And you spend all spring and all summer tending this garden. The problem is you actually really don't care about it. And so when I say you spend all spring and summer tending it, I mean you spend all spring and summer binge-watching stuff on Netflix. And harvest season comes around. And you wander out of your yard. And your beautiful garden, you planned it out. You went to Lowe's. They had the guy there. He helped you. It's awful. It's just thorns and briars and rotten plants and dead trees, and it's just awful. I mean, everything about it's like, well, that's worthless space. That would actually injure me to even clear the land out. I'm probably just going to leave it and abandon that part of my yard to the wilderness, right? And you look over, and there's Jesus' garden, and it is Every piece of fruit, every vegetable, luscious, ready to eat. And he wanders over and peers over the fence. Hey, dude. <laughs> I noticed your garden looks pretty terrible. <laughs> Thanks, Jesus. <laughs> I probably should have watched a little less Netflix this time. Hey, listen, I've been thinking about it. I'll clear out your garden for you. I'd love to clear out your land for you. I'll do that. No, dude, that's cool. No, no, no. I want to. I'm thinking about it. You got a lot going on. I'm going to clear that land for you. And so Jesus comes into your yard and he bears the fruit of your laziness. He goes and he puts on his gloves and he cuts down the briars and he gathers up the brambles and he clears your land. He pays the consequence of your faithlessness. So he comes back covered in dirt and scratched up and you know, 50,000 thorns sticking out, and he's like, whew, got it, done, man. Hey, I've been thinking about it. How about you just go ahead, take the fruit off my garden? You want all that stuff? I'm good. You can have it. And you go, no, 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 seriously. I don't need it. That's yours. That's my gift to you. Go, go reap that harvest. You can have that. And so you wander over and you harvest the garden you never tended. And you fill up baskets and baskets of wonderful, perfect produce given to you, not only free of charge, but actually in place of the thorns and brambles you actually earn. You see, beloved, Jesus doesn't just break the curse. He makes a way for recreation. He doesn't just take our punishment. He gives us his righteousness. Amen. In the gospel, the power of salvation for all who believe, the righteousness of God is revealed. He takes our, our punishment and he gives us his blessing and his inheritance that he rightly earned. Because this is the story of the gospel. The Holy Spirit has been placed in you and you are almost but not yet. You are included in the kingdom. You are promised an inheritance and a payment that you never worked for and you never labored for. And yet, it is there awaiting you. You are adopted into the family and grafted onto the tree. And you will receive the blessing of the perfect righteous life of Jesus Christ. Thank you. It is there for you. You get to bear the fruit of his perfection. The scripture says the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. 
This promise is there for you, no matter what you do. Because God is a promise maker, and God is a promise keeper. And He promised, I will come back, and I will make all things new. I, I broke the back of the curse, yes, but one day I will return, and every single thing will be recreated in perfection with no more pain and no more suffering and no more wrong and no more injustice. This is the gift of our sweet Jesus. Perfection. Recreation. So the story of the gospel is that creation, sin, promise, Jesus, recreation. God made it. We broke it. He promised he would fix it. He fixed it. And someday he's going to come back and we're going to get to party with this. And that's the story of the gospel. That's the story that changes lives. That's the story that fuels the Christian life. Not just, hey listen, you're kind of a dirtbag, but good news for you, God made a way so that you don't have to burn in hell for that. That's beautiful, but man, the God who made you the God who loves you, the God in whose image you have been handcrafted, the God whom you have rebelled against and pushed back on and willfully, continually kicked away from you, that God has borne the brunt of your negligence. And he has reaped for you a harvest of blessing. And all you have to do is joyfully receive it. You can actually be a part of his family. You can actually be included in his promise. His obedience can actually be imparted onto you. Someday he's going to come back. Everything. That is the story of the gospel. So what do we do with that? What does that mean for us? I'm going to be really, really brief here. I know it's lunchtime. Beloved, that story speaks into Every part of your life. That you are always in that story. How many of you right now, on some level, you are rebelling against God as your creator? The fact that he's your creator means he's your authority. means he owns you. How many of us actually don't want to submit to that? There are areas of your life where you, you demand your own authority and your own autonomy. How many of you right now just need to be reminded of the fact that God has promised you He'll fix what's broken? How often does this cursed world look so big and so heavy and so weighty that we just go, there's nothing that can be done about this. Beloved, your God promises you something can be done about this. He's not just a promise maker. His words are empty. He's a promise keeper. And Jesus has come to this place and lived a perfect life. He has kept his promise. You, How many of us legitimately need to just submit to the finished work of Jesus and receive his justification and receive his salvation and live into the beautiful, wonderful inheritance that he freely gives to us? How many of us need to join in the work to go he left, but he's coming back and he's going to fix everything. You can be a part of it. How many of us need to proclaim that the recreation is coming? That God has kept his promises. Every aspect of your life fits into this story because, 
Beloved, this story is human existence. It encapsulates everything. This is the story God has been working since before he created, and this is the story he will play out for the rest of eternity. Never graduate from the gospel. Every single person you engage throughout your day, your family members, your employees, your customers, your neighbors, your friends, every single one of them has a place in the story. And they're invited into life and freedom in Jesus. Every single one of you, no matter how long you've known Jesus, you have a place in the story. And it moves around. Some days you need to be reminded to proclaim the recreation. Some days you need to fall at the feet of Jesus and, and experience his justification. Some days you need to proclaim that God makes promises and he keeps them. Some days you need to fall on your face and submit to your creator and Lord. Every single one of us needs this story every moment of every day. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing one more song. Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead us in a prayer real quick. And here's, here's what I'm going to do with this prayer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray through each aspect of this story. And I want you to take a moment in your seat to actually engage that. To be honest with Jesus about where you sit in that story. To actually, actually like, see yourself in that. To hear God's words to you in that part of the story. Then we can we can end out just singing this song together. And then we'll end our time. It's not like a prayer. Join the theme prayer. Jesus, you are our creator. You are good and you are generous. But you are also authority. You made this. You made us. You own us. Yet, God, we, we are proud and sinful. We desire autonomy. God, for every single person in this room and in the areas of our life, we push you back and we declare our own ability to take care of things. May you love and graciously fill us to Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.